Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Okay, this morning, we're going to continue to worship God as we read Scripture and hear a message from it. And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and want to follow along, the book of Psalms is really easy to find. It's the largest book of the Bible and also right in the middle. So if you just open it up about halfway through, you'll likely hit the Psalms. Um, It's after Job and before the Proverbs. And we're in Psalm chapter 4. We're doing something similar that we did last July, uh, just a few sermons on what we're calling spiritual rhythms. Uh, They're more traditionally referred to as spiritual disciplines. Um, These are ways that God has ordained through Scripture uh, for us to seek Him, for us to grow in Him, for us to grow closer to Him. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at prayer, the spiritual rhythm, the spiritual discipline of prayer, next week, fasting, and the week after that, Scripture meditation. Um, So those are the three spiritual rhythms we're going to look at um, in this morning, as I said, prayer. But I want to kind of bridge our uh, message on prayer this morning with the previous messages we've looked at over the last month and a half in the book of Genesis. Um, you guys remember we studied Genesis the tail end of May until just a couple of weeks ago, and we really focused on, in the book of Genesis, both the blessing of family and the brokenness of family. Um, the way that God blesses us and brings much life to us, and the way that Family is so important, uh, but the way that it is also incredibly broken. It is embarrassingly broken, especially if you look at the families in the book of Genesis. Uh, We talked about how there is a Jerry Springer level of drama within some of these families. I mean, literally between Judah and Tamar, it is a who's the real daddy story. Um, It is is intense and, and sad and tragic, but also encouraging to know that the same kind of brokenness in our lives existed amongst God's people, especially Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this morning, and what happens in Psalm chapter 4, is these two things collide, both prayer and relational pain, relational difficulty. And so that's what we're going to see, a model of prayer and a model of responding to relational conflict through prayer in the life of King David. So let's read these verses, Psalm chapter 4. I'll read all eight verses, brothers and sisters, Hear the words of our God. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Relationships are messy. Relationships are hurtful. We've never been in a relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way. But God has created us for community. Both vertical community with God and horizontal community with each other. We shouldn't run away from the messiness of community. We shouldn't try to avoid imperfect people. Well, those are the opening lines of Paul Tripp and Tim Lane's book entitled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. They say relationships are messy, they're disappointing. In fact, we've never been in a relationship that hasn't disappointed us in some way. But God created us for this. God created us for community. He put us in a church. He put us in a family. He's given us friends and co-workers. So you feel the rub here. This is our relational dilemma that we saw throughout the book of Genesis. On the one hand, relationships can be very painful. On the other hand, they are very necessary. And we were made for them. Well, in Psalm chapter 4, David is feeling pain from people. And this isn't so much physical torture. His body, as far as we know, is in good shape. But his spirit is broken. In verse 1, he speaks of experiencing distress. And we can infer from verse 8 that he had had trouble sleeping. He's so torn up inside, he couldn't rest. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Has there ever been someone with whom you're so angry or you're so anxious or you're so disappointed that you can't sleep? Well, that's where David is. And that's where we all are in our own way. David is living between the tension that relationships are painful and that relationships are necessary. And that's where we all live, within this painful tension. So what are we going to do with our grief from other people? What are we going to do with our relational pain? Well, the message of this psalm meets us right in the middle of this tension. Prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. That's the main point that I'm drawing from Psalm chapter 4. A prayerful response to those who've hurt us can transform relational pain into peaceful rest. So I want to look at this transformation that happens within David. Starting in verse 1, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So this is where David's at At the start, he's pleading with God. He speaks of his distress. He says, answer me, give relief, be gracious, hear my prayer. And there seems to be this overall sense of desperation as David appeals to God for help. That's where David is. As we'll see, he's experiencing relational pain, but he prays. He cries out to God. Now look at the end of the psalm in verse 8. Look at the transformation that's happened in David's soul. He says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So 
David is transformed from relational pain to peaceful rest. And this is a demonstration of God's victory over the evil one. Even the simple act of sleeping in peace. Because Satan would destroy our trust in God and he would steal our peace from God. So for us to lay down and sleep, to close our eyes, to shut off our minds, this is a way of saying, God is my safety. God is my peace. So you see the transformation. Prayer prayer transforms relational pain in verse 1 into peaceful rest in verse 8. Now, that's the start and the finish, but what happens in between? What is prayer doing that helps David work towards this transformation? Well, remember our main point. Prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. David's prayer in verse 1 energizes his response to those who've hurt him. David isn't simply going to pray about his problems. David also speaks to those who have caused his sleepless distress. He responds to them. And this prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. And throughout the psalm, we see three different types of people that David responds to. First, David responds to backstabbers. Second, he responds to hotheads. And third, he responds to pessimists. Backstabbers, hotheads, and pessimists. That's who has caused David relational pain, and that who is who he is going to prayerfully respond to. So first, responding to backstabbers. Responding to backstabbers. Look again at verse 2. David goes from praying to God in verses 1 and 2 to speaking to those who have hurt him. He says in verse 2, Oh men! How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? So the men David addresses here, they must have known something of David's honor as the king. They knew something of his glory and his kingdom. Maybe they were close to him in some way, maybe even on their leadership team or a part of his kingdom. But these men turned the king's glory into shame. And they betray their commitment to David. They stab him in the back, seeking after lies and loving vanity. And notice David's prayerful response to these men. He asks, how long? How long are you going to do this? So David doesn't blow up on them. He doesn't berate them with verbal assaults. He simply asks, how long? When are you going to wake up to this insanity? You remember when Jesus was betrayed? Towards the end of his life, he had just finished praying on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is there speaking with his disciples. And all of a sudden, this mass of Roman soldiers appears in order to arrest Jesus. And these soldiers are led by Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples. Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him. You remember, this is what Judas had set up for the soldiers in order to know who Jesus was and identify him. It said, he'll be the one that I kiss. And Jesus responds to this backstabber like this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 48, he says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Jesus' response here, it reminds me of what David says in Psalm 4. 
Because each man has a level-headed steadiness in their response to betrayal and backstabbing. Neither one of them respond with uncontrollable rage or verbal violence, and neither one of them shrink back and don't say anything. Instead, these men of prayer respond with a question. How long? Would you do this? Would you betray me like this? That's what a prayerful response to backstabbing looks like. Then in verse 3, David continues speaking to these backstabbers. He says to them, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In other words, David says, Backstabbers, you betrayed me, but God is committed to me. I may not have a relationship with you anymore, but I do have a relationship with the Lord. You may not answer when I call anymore, but God answers when I call to him. So we can sense David's confidence rising here, can't we? David presses into and vocalizes the supremacy of his relationship with God. Because the truth is, we could lose every relationship we have. Theoretically, it could happen. Everyone could betray us. But the Lord has set us apart for himself. And how wonderfully true this is for us who are in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that we are sanctified, we are set apart in Christ. The Lord sets apart the godly for himself, even though we may be betrayed by everyone else. So how does David engage backstabbers? He prayerfully responds with a humble question. How long would you do this? And he confidently asserts God's commitment to him. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. King David was betrayed by Absalom, his own son. He was betrayed by Ahithophel, one of his advisors. And King Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his own disciples. But what about you? Who's turned on you in betrayal? Who's stabbed you in the back? Maybe it was a business partner who cheated you. Maybe it was a spouse who cheated on you. Maybe it was a pastor or a Christian friend who misled you. Sadly, these kinds of experiences are all too common in a Genesis 3 world. So the question isn't, will we be betrayed? The question is, how will we respond when we are betrayed? How have you responded to it? And maybe your response won't sound exactly like David's does in these couple of verses, but what must be true of us, like David's, is that his response is forged through the process of prayer. Before David speaks to his betrayer, he speaks to God in verses 1 and 2. Answer me. Give me relief. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. So brothers and sisters, let's let the pain of betrayal drive us to God so that we can then speak to our betrayer in a way that honors God and allows us to lay our heads on our pillows at night and sleep in peace. A prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest, including how we respond to backstabbers. But here's the next group that David responds to, hotheads. Responding to 
hotheads. So look again at verses 4 and 5. David says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So if the backstabbers from verses 2 and 3 have lost their commitment to David, then the hotheads of verses 4 and 5 are overcommitted to David. And it's their impulsive actions and words that stress David out. So he tells them, be angry. There's nothing wrong with being angry necessarily. But slow down. Cool down. Ponder these things in your heart, on your bed, in silence. Before you act or speak out of anger, sit and let your anger be guided by your trust in the Lord. That's David's prayerfully produced response to these zealous hotheads. And these same kind of people, apparently, can be found in the church. Because in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, verse 19, James says something very similar. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So James doesn't say, don't be angry. Same for David. David says, in fact, be angry. But let there be a slowness to your anger. Sit with your anger so that it's guided by your trust in the Lord, so that there's a godly focus to your anger. And here again, we can think about the arrest of Jesus. When the Roman soldiers laid their hands on Jesus to arrest him, Peter, Jesus' chief disciple, pulls out a dagger and slices off one of the soldier's ear. Now, if he sliced off one of these soldiers' ear, where do you think he was aiming? Probably his throat. That's right. Peter tried to kill a guy. And gratefully for that soldier, he ducks just in time, and the knife gets his ear. That was Peter's response to this angering situation. But then Jesus, the man of prayer, he rebukes Peter. And he says, no more of this. Physical violence and physical aggression is not the way of the kingdom. But wait, Jesus. Are you not arrested that you're being angry? Shouldn't we be angry that the Son of God is being arrested and eventually he'll be crucified? Shouldn't Peter be angry that Jesus is being arrested? Of course he should. For Jesus to be arrested is the height of injustice. But you see, there's a focus to Jesus' anger. In his anger, Jesus doesn't erupt in violence as Peter did the hothead. Instead, listen to what Jesus says as he continues. He says to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So you see, I think Jesus is angry, but his anger is focused on the mission God has given him, his mission to fulfill the scriptures through his death and resurrection. Jesus trusts that this is where my anger needs to be expressed, the defeat of the evil one on the cross. Be angry, 
But do not sin. Sit with your anger and trust in the Lord. This is the prayerful response to hotheads. David is hurt by their impulsiveness, but he prayerfully corrects them towards strength and wisdom. We are living in what some have called the age of rage. Social discourse, whether it's talking heads on the news or speeches by politicians or chants from protesters and certainly posts on social media, our social discourse is infused with anger. And writing on this topic, pastor and professor Ed Stetzer says this, quote, We have entered a new age, one defined by polarization and tribalism amplified by new technology and online platforms. And when you combine the polarization and tribalization with the new technology and social media, what you get is a lot of the sharp, intense, hurtful speech motivated by anger at the other side. And the worst part of all of this is that in large part, we as Christians have been drugged right along into the rage fest of the world. The hotheads around us, the zealots around us, whether they're fired up about whatever political issue or they're zealous about whatever cultural situation we have allowed the hotheads in our lives to drag us into the fury, and perhaps it's because we have not prayed before we've responded. Jesus is a man of prayer. And when he faces an infuriating situation, like being arrested, he responds very differently than the hot-headed, zealous Peter. And so too for King David. He doesn't tell these hotheads, hey, it's wrong to be angry. You shouldn't be angry. Be a nice boy. No. He doesn't say it's wrong to be angry, but it is more right to be in prayer. And so he is able to resist the furor that's around him and offer a wise, calming response. And so too, Christian, it must be for us. Let's not lament that we are in the age of rage. In God's providence, we are where we are and we are when we are. He has put us in this place and he has put us in this time. But he has put us here to make a difference. And he has put us here to be different. And if that's to be the case, we must be men and women of prayer. Responding to backstabbers, responding to hotheads, and finally, responding to pessimists. Responding to pessimists. Look once more at verses 6 and 7. David writes, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? So David has been dragged down by betrayal. He has been disturbed by zealous aggression. But this third group hurts David with their pessimism. These people are defeatists. They've given up. And their lack of faith sounds like this. Who will show us some good? The implication seems to be no one. We're lost. We're hopeless. And interestingly, David doesn't respond to these pessimists directly. He doesn't speak to them directly as he did the backstabbers and the hotheads previously. He doesn't confront their doubt head on. Instead, perhaps in their presence, he prays. Verses 6 and 7. 
Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than these pessimists have when their grain and wine abound. So pessimism is a dark and despairing attitude. But David says here that there is light in God's face. And from this light, there is a joy that enters into the hearts of those who behold him. More joy than what comes from a mass of material blessings. Now, why does this joy, why does this joy giving light come from the Lord's face? Well, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 15 says, In the light of the king's face, there is life. So what is it about the face that gives life and light? Well, I read this about faces recently. It says this, quote, When we speak to someone, we don't look at and address his or her kneecaps or feet or back or stomach. We address the person to his or her face. The face is the relational gate into a person's mind and heart. I love that. The face is a person's relational gate. In other words, through our faces is where we really connect. Through facing each other is where relationship happens. So, for example, this is why we have the furniture in this room arranged the way that we do. Because we as worship leaders, we want to connect with you. I'm trying to lead you in the word. Ben and his team are leading us in song. And in order to lead you, we need to be relationally connected to you so we have you face us. Like, imagine me trying to preach with my back turned towards you. It's hard for me to preach, and I imagine that it's hard for you to listen because we aren't connected, because we aren't facing each other. So David's prayer for the pessimistic person is that once again, we would experience the light and warmth and joy of relationship with God. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9, it tells the story of Jesus' transfiguration. This is a scene where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on top of a mountain to pray. And as Jesus was praying, it says that his face was transfigured and that his face shone like the sun and became dazzling bright. Now, there's much significance to this scene, but if nothing else, we can say... It means that in Jesus Christ, the light of the Lord's face has shone upon us. We have a relationship, we have connection with the Heavenly Father through Jesus. In Jesus' face, there is this concentrated brightness that speaks of God's divine presence. And this face shines on us, bringing joy to our hearts. More joy than what comes when our grain and wine abound. More joy than what comes when we receive whatever material blessing. More joy than what comes when we achieve whatever political victory. Friends, nothing overcomes a pessimistic view of life and the world like the gospel of Jesus. This is the gospel, friends. This is the good news that through Jesus... Through the dark day of his gruesome death, God worked to bring us back into the light of his resurrection joy. And so I call on you now, trust in him. Jesus' face 
is turned toward you and he welcomes you wherever you are, no matter how deep in despair you may be. But this is David's response to the pessimist in his life. He responds not with rebuke, as he did the backstabbers. He doesn't respond with correction, as he did the hotheads. But he responds with more prayer. He responds with a joyful declaration of his confidence in God. Okay, honest story. Not exaggerating. Numerous times over the last year and a half, since President Biden was elected, numerous times, I've heard Christians say something like, oh, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, this is the end. We're doomed. It's all over. Who will show us some good? They quote Psalm 4, verse 7. You know, just responses that are marked by pessimism. Now listen, I'm not saying that we got to walk around all happy, clappy all the time. Happy, happy, joy, joy, and be all superficially cheery all the time. But what I am saying is that a fundamentally pessimistic view of life and the world is contrary to the joyful confidence that we should have in the gospel. In one sense, I don't care what happens in this country politically, because at the end of the day, Jesus' grave is still empty. And his Holy Spirit is still poured out amongst us. And that's what gives me hope. Not the rise and fall of some puny politicians who are going to be swept into the dustbin of eternity and our grandchildren will probably barely know their names. But Jesus, they're going to know Jesus. And the power of the gospel is going to march forward and leave all those dudes behind. But my fear is that we've given in to pessimism. Because unlike David, we are not people of prayer. Instead of hearing pessimism and then seeking God, we hear the pessimism and then join it. But brothers and sisters, it should not be so. We have rock-solid, eternal, living hope in Christ. Let's live like it. Let's pray like it. Let's respond to pessimists like it. But it is true. Relationships are messy. The backstabbers, the hotheads, the pessimists, many others, they make for some messy relationships. And like David, the messiness and pain of relationships can keep us from sleep. It can steal our sense of security in God, steal our sense of joy in God. But David shows us a path forward, a prayerful response transforms relational pain into peaceful rest. By prayerfully responding to those who've hurt us, we can be at peace again. Backstabbers, hotheads, pessimists, they all can crush our spirits and rob us of sleep. Ignoring the pain, hiding from tough relationships, none of that pleases God or moves us forward in a flourishing and godly way. Rather, moving toward God through prayer will help us to move toward our painful relationships in a healthy way, in a God-honoring way, in a way that can help us sleep peacefully at night. I pray it would be so for me and you. Lord, help us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, the last few weeks, and maybe today too in light of scripture, 
many painful relationships have come to mind in our own lives, in our own history. David was betrayed by his own son, by a close advisor. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples. And all of us have a long list of folks that things aren't right, things aren't the way they should be. So we come before you, Father, broken. Each one of us has acted out in different ways, shouted in angry or shouted in anger or shrunk back in passivity. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We seek you this morning because we want to show up in the midst of relational conflict different. We want to show up having spent time with you. We want to use our voices. We want to use our presence in order to be agents of reconciliation and people of love. And so we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would stir in each one of us, stir in our hearts, stir in our life groups, stir in our church, so that we could be a people of prayer, so that we could be people of strength and courage and boldness, so that we could be people of grace and peace as we enter into the pain of relationships. Father, only you can do this. Many of the brokenness, many of the broken relationships seem impossible to overcome. But we pray that you would do the impossible. We pray that you would move mountains. We pray that you would change hearts that have been hardened for decades and reunite us and bring healing. And we'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.